calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover. And you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Singularity by Bill DeSmet. Copyright 2004 by William H. DeSmet. All rights reserved. Chapter 6 Our Ship Comes In. After an early breakfast topped off with two hours of what the client euphemistically referred to as check in, a battery of security probes stopping just this side of a full body cavity search, Knox was ushered into the august presence of Euripides Pete Aristos, Director, Reacquisition Working Group, DOE Critical Resources Oversight Mandate. Aristos turned out to be a heavy-set, balding, shirt-sleeves type, whose taste in office decor ran to Green Bar Baroque. He'd had his headquarters suite furnished almost exclusively in randomly situated piles of computer printout. The man himself was talking on a headset and worrying with a light pen at a high-definition display that took up most of the rear wall. Right now, that data wall was showing a channel map of the Chesapeake Bay, spangled with blinking points of light done in tasteful shades of fire engine red. Aristos was playing connect the dots with the light pen in sync with whatever the headset was telling him. Without turning, he waved his visitors toward chairs stacked with the ubiquitous printouts. Mariana unceremoniously dumped the contents of her chair on the floor and motioned Knox to follow suit. I keep telling him it's the paperless third millennium. Wake up and save the trees, Mariana whispered, leaning toward Knox conspiratorially. She was making an effort to be friendly this morning. But Pete's old school, she went on. He'd rather live with this clutter than try to assimilate textual information from a vertical surface. He could get a thin-line display, Knox said. Pricey, but it would lie flat on his desk. Don't think I haven't tried, she began, then broke off when her boss turned to face them. Knox? Peter Aristos. Aristos held out a beefy hand. Mariana, take care of you? Get your coffee? I'm fine, thanks. Okay. Aristos slipped off the headset and settled into his chair. Everything you're about to see in here comes under the Homeland Security boilerplate. You just... He paused to cock a quizzical eyebrow at Mariana. She nodded. You just signed. Nothing leaves this room. Got me? Check. Mariana, do your thing. Pete handed her the light pen. 
He rolled his chair to one side and beat a brief tattoo on the detachable keyboard resting in his lap. Mariana rose and walked behind the big desk. In response to Aristos' keystrokes, the map of Chesapeake Bay covering the rear wall gave way to the seal of the United States Department of Energy, hovering over a day-glow-on-midnight top security banner. We're under some time pressure here, Mariana began, so I'll skip through the intro pretty quick. If she knew or suspected that Knox had already seen most of it, she wasn't letting on. As you may have already gathered, John, the mandate is a branch of the Energy Department attached to DOE's National Nuclear Security Administration. But it also dotted line reports to Homeland Security and, of course, those field agencies with operational responsibilities. The data wall now showed an org chart. On it, all roads led to CROM, including some originating from agencies with household three-letter acronyms. CROM was created back in the mid-90s as a DOE carve-out from the Nunn-Luger Cooperative Threat Reduction Program. Mariana continued what sounded like a well-practiced pitch. But whereas CTR proper focused on the material aspects, working with the Russians to decommission weapons production facilities and secure or destroy fissionables, CROM was tasked with what NSA General Counsel Elizabeth Rinskop had called the human dimension of nonproliferation. Mariana was prowling back and forth in front of the data wall. Her feline movements held far more fascination than her lecture material, most of which Knox knew already. When the Soviet Union formally ceased to exist on December 21, 1991, she was saying, the military-industrial complex it left behind was the second largest in the world, capacity-wise, and the largest in terms of population. The nuclear weapons program alone employed over a million workers, housed in ten secret cities. Not shown on any map, known but to God, the USSR Ministry of Defense and the CIA, just one of those cities stored more weapons-grade plutonium than the stockpiles of France, Great Britain, and the People's Republic of China put together. With the pass of the light pen, Krom's org chart yielded to a polar projection of the former USSR, ten red stars all a-twinkle. More to our point, this nuclear archipelago was home to some 90,000 weapons scientists and engineers. While chemical and biological warfare never achieved quite this level of urban planning, adding in their staffs would increase the numbers by 50 to 60 percent, over half of them now living below any third-world poverty line you'd care to draw. Mariana took a breath, then continued. Enter the Initiative for Proliferation Prevention, IPP for short. Overshoes and kerosene space heaters to keep guards at their posts. Food stamps for physicists. Urban renewal in Sarov, Snezhinsk, Zhelezhnogorsk, all the secret cities. Anything to keep Russia's weapons experts from selling their services to the rogue nations of the world. Quite simply, that's us. Krom is the initiative for proliferation prevention, among other things. The box labeled Krom was back, now sporting a smaller IPP rectangle inside it. The intent back in 94 was just to provide administrative support for the initiative. It didn't turn out that way. There's more to the human dimension of non-proliferation than food stamps and workfare. If you think it's hard repurposing a neurotoxin or a thermonuclear device, try retraining the scientists who created them. Even now, 
IPP has moved less than 10% of the target population out of WMD research and into the civilian economy. Meanwhile, things just keep getting worse for the ones left behind. Behind her, the data wall filled with stills and clips of soup kitchens in Tomsk 7, picket lines in front of the Arzamaz 16 weapons lab, hunger strikes at the Primorsky nuclear power plant, a march on the Ministry of Atomic Energy in Moscow to demand unpaid wages. Aristos turned to look Knox in the eye. Don't go getting all choked up there, Knox. These are the same guys that thought the Cold War was the glory days. You know what the other Ivans used to call them? The chocolate eaters, he snorted. Special shops and hospitals, trips abroad, exclusive resorts, first class all the way. Now that they're standing on the breadlines with everybody else, of course they bitch and moan about it. Still, there's no denying that these resentments represent a very real danger, Mariana resumed smoothly, when harbored by a population with marketable skills in mass destruction. By the turn of the century, disaffected scientists posed a greater proliferation threat than did the lax security on the materials they produced. Dozens of outlaw states and more than a few well-heeled terrorist organizations were offering top dollar for WMD expertise on the hoof. Aristos. Bottom line, IPP alone wasn't getting the job done. Everybody knew it. Nobody gave a shit. That changed. Mariana seemed used to integrating her boss's interjections into her presentation. Come 9-11. September 11th, 2001 the day everything had changed. As for the change in Crom, that was reflected in the org chart, where the IPP box had now been joined by one labeled Compliance. Don't be misled by the name. Compliance's main responsibility is to monitor the movements and activities of the 20,000 or so individuals in Russia, the CIS, and elsewhere who pose the highest proliferation threat. Now the wall was showing flyovers of multiprocessors in serried ranks, fisheyes of banks of workstations staffed by analysts in office casuals and headsets, lingering close-ups of room-filling climate control and uninterruptible power installations, all the paraphernalia of a large IT operation served up to impress visiting Congress critters and other dignitaries. Knox yawned. Satellite feed, communications intercept, Media analysis, physical surveillance, Mariana narrated. It all flows into compliance for cross-correlation and action recommendations. And, added Aristos, as a sideline, they keep tabs on the KGB. It's not called that anymore, is it? Knox said. Don't you mean the uh, FSB? Don't I wish, Aristos said. Russia's Federal Security Service is working with us on this. No, I mean the good old Kagefuckingbe. Pardon my French. He twitched a smile in Mariana's direction, then turned back to Knox. See, not everybody made the cut when they transitioned to a kinder, gentler police state. Some balked. Others just plain weren't asked. Soviet-era excesses, that sort of thing. And not being the sort to go gentle into that good night, Mariana added. They've banded together into a so-called Shadow KGB, a cabal dedicated to restoring the dictatorship of the proletariat and not, incidentally, their own privileged positions within it. But 
Dylan Thomas aside, how is any of this Crom's concern? I'd have thought you had your plate full with just the proliferation problem. Aristo shook his head. The Shadow KGB is the proliferation problem, Knox. Nobody else has got the contacts to set up these deals. I'm talking close working relationships with global reach terrorist networks stretching back three, four decades. The scientists are just merchandise. It's the KGB does the sales and provisioning. And, Mariana picked up her cue, it's largely due to their tradecraft that compliance loses track of as many disaffecteds as it does. When that happens, it's up to our working group to reacquire the targets. The orc chart was back, having grown a third rectangle labeled reacquisition. It's breadth versus depth. Mariana ceased pacing and hiked herself up onto a corner of Pete's desk, improving Knox's view of well-turned leg no end. Compliance is in charge of the big picture. Reacquisition focuses on individual cases. Such as misplaced magnetohydrodynamicists? Mariana filled you in on that part, huh? Aristos shot her a vaguely disapproving side glance. Actually, MHD only rates a yellow alert. The magnet guys wouldn't even be watchlisted if it weren't for the tokamak connection. You know about that? About tokamaks? They're, um, magnetic bottles, aren't they? Electromagnetic arrays that generate a containment field for plasmas of subatomic particles. Pinch the plasma and you've got thermonuclear power generation. That's the theory, anyway. I don't think it's ever worked in practice. Knox, the closet popular science buff. If they've got any military application, he finished, I don't know about it. Turns out they do, Aristos said. It's called a pure fusion bomb, a fissionless H-bomb. That made sense. A normal thermonuclear device used a plutonium trigger, in essence a small atom bomb, to generate the million-degree heat needed to jumpstart the fusion reaction. But a really tight magnetic pinch might achieve the same effect. The yield would be small, maybe no more than a kiloton or two, but with no radioactives on board. Jesus Christ, the damn thing would be undetectable. Yeah, your ideal suitcase bomb, if anybody could figure out how to build one. Aristo shrugged. Hasn't happened yet, far as we know. But... Pure fusion tech in the wrong hands would be destabilizing as all hell. And nobody's about to take chances anymore. So, Krom adds the magnet guys to the watch list. And when compliance loses them, we get to go find them. Which sums up the reacquisition mission as a whole. Mariana was nothing if not adept at keeping a meeting on track. It's gotten easier since the Russians started playing ball after 9-11. Between us, we've cranked the flood down to a trickle. A trickle. That didn't sound so bad. Knox relaxed ever so slightly. Too bad these days even a trickle can kill you. Aristo sent an evil grin his way. Still, Mariana hurried on, most often it's much ado about nothing. A radiology technician off on a lost weekend with her best friend's husband, or an assistant biolab director attending an out-of-area conference unannounced. Stuff like that. And sometimes it's not, Aristo said again. The man seemed to positively delight in stoking Knox's already considerable consternation. The data wall behind Aristos now showed a close-up of a somber, donnish-looking gentleman in winter coat, fur hat, and handcuffs. Its caption read, 
Ivan Alexeyevich Kruglov, former head of the Arzamas-16 nuclear weapons lab, reacquired Tbilisi December 20, 2002, en route to Tehran. We call them proliferation threats, she said. Proles for short. Nice Orwellian touch, don't you think? Kruglov's image telescoped down to a thumbnail in the upper left-hand corner, and another took center stage. Marina Alexandrovna Galitsina, chief of toxicology, Bayun 17 Black Lab. Then another, and another. By the time the sequence had run its course, the entire data wall was filled with miniature mugshots of reacquired fugitives, a rogues gallery of Soviet science. These, of course, Mariana voiceovered, are only the ones we managed to reacquire while in transit. Them we hand off to Russian or CIS authorities for the actual arrest and detention under a codicil to the Cooperative Threat Reduction Program. If, on the other hand, a prole is located only after the buyer's taken delivery, reacquisition gets problematic. In that case, the file is turned over to interdiction for final disposition. We point, they click. A new rectangle took its place on the org chart, displayed in halftone, presumably to signify that interdiction was in the organization, but not of it. Sure enough, dotted lines ran from it out of the crom frame entirely to terminate in the external field agencies with operational responsibilities. A case study in the matrix management of mayhem. Knox shifted in his chair. And final disposition involves what exactly? Aristos exchanged a glance with Mariana, then turned back to Knox. We could tell you, but then we'd have to shoot you, he joked. At least Knox hoped it was a joke. Which brings us back to me, Knox said. From what I've just seen of your IT ops, you're up to your bikini briefs and systems analysts. What do you need me for? In response, Mariana called up a new slide, blank except for security markings and three names. Viktor Ilyich Komarov, David Yakovich Dinerstein, Galina Mikhailovna Pastrenikova. Like you said earlier, John, it's all about magnetohydrodynamicists. These three in particular. Krom is trying to reacquire them as we speak. She did a creditable job of pronouncing the names, then filled in the details. All three are PhD laureates of the All-Union Institute for Magnetohydrodynamics in Moscow, doctorates awarded 89, 98, and 90, respectively. All involved in tokamak research till its defunding in 2001. Pastralnikova and Komarov as staff in Akadem Gorodok, Dinerstein as a postdoc at Mendeleev in St. Pete. On IPP maintenance thereafter. Last sightings? Komarov in Lisbon, February 11th, a year ago. Dinerstein in Cherbourg, September 3rd, same year. Astrelnikova, Lower Manhattan, just two days ago. That explained the non-alphabetical listing, order of evaporation. Mariana turned from the wall display to look straight at Knox. Part of the reason you're here is your personal relationship with one of the subjects, Pastralnikova. In addition, though, there's another, even more promising connection. The name Rusalka mean anything to you? Aristos asked. Knox furrowed his brow. Um, 
something out of Russian folklore, Ethnology 101. It's a mermaid of sorts, I think. Really? Didn't know that. Aristos flicked a smile on and off. Anyway, that's not the one I meant. Rusalka's a ship. A ship registered to Grecian Enterprises International. Arkady Grecian's conglomerate. But a Rusalka isn't your standard-issue Hans Christian Andersen-type mermaid. Knox had remembered the rest of it. More a kind of water demon. She entices sailors into the depths and drowns them. Hardly an auspicious name to give a boat. Tell me if this looks auspicious to you. Aristos tapped at the keyboard in his lap. The Krom org chart went away. In its place, the 3D image of a ship now floated in the data wall behind him. Luxurious doesn't even come close. You name it, she's got it. Helipad, banquet hall the length of a football field, nailed up downlink from the Sviaz 12 geosync satellite, the whole nine yards. You sure you never heard of her? She was in all the papers when she called New York this week. Guess I've got to start reading the shipping news, but that time frame is suggestive. Mariana nodded. Uh-huh. It was during Rusalka's New York layover that Galena, or someone posing as Galena, got herself disappeared. You're suggesting Galena was abducted by someone on Rusalka? Hell no. She arrived on Rusalka. Aristos ran fat fingers through thinning hair. They extracted her right off the roof of a downtown skyscraper. Caught compliance with their pants down. No sighting since. The balls in reacquisitions court. Mariana's cheeks looked flushed for some reason. There's more to the story than that, she said. You flashed on it yourself yesterday when I showed you that snapshot. The extractee was almost certainly not the same Galina Mikhailovna Pastrelnikova who boarded Rusalka on the June 27th in Cherbourg. But whoever she was, she disembarked, right? So why all the interest in the ship? Common denominator. The first two, Kamarov and Dienerstein, were routine disappearances, not extractions like Galina. But there's a Rusalka connection there, too, if you go looking hard enough. Something in Mariana's tone said she was the one who'd gone looking. So, if Galina never really left... Uh-huh, she said. We're guessing all three of those proles are still on board. What's Galina doing on a yacht anyway? Knox asked. Precious little luxury in the lives of Russian physicists these days, if Krom's stats were even halfway accurate. For public consumption? Aristos shrugged. Taking a cruise with an old flame, is all. Wait a minute. Not Sasha. So that's why they'd called him in. Right the first time. Arkady Grecian second in command, heir apparent, and by a strange coincidence, this time Aristos's broad grin seemed genuine, your old drinking buddy, Alexander Andreevich Bondarenko. Sasha. This assignment sure was raising old ghosts. First Galena, now this, the specter par excellence, the memory Knox had consigned to oblivion lo these past twenty years, the friend he'd never intended to make in the first place. Making friends with Russians in the waning days of the Soviet era was contraindicated for an American exchange student. The xenophobia was mutual, to the point where the only Russians eager to hang out with foreigners were dissidents or 
Worst news, KGB snitches. Either way, they spelled trouble. Trouble was exactly what Jonathan Knox didn't want. He'd pretty much resigned himself to a solitary ten-month tour, to moving wraith-like through Soviet society, a detached, immaterial observer. Meeting Galina in the metro made short work of his plans for immateriality. Stevie's adventure on the escalator had raised his clinginess index to where any attempt to disengage him from his rescuer threatened another squalling fit. For her part, Galena didn't seem to want to let go either. The three of them wound up riding together all the way into central Moscow. With the little boy perched on her lap in the rocking subway car, the young woman even managed a hesitant, whispered, getting-to-know-you conversation with Knox. It was as if all her ingrained Soviet wariness of foreigners had melted away in the presence of this foreign child. As if childhood were a country unto itself, any of whose natives could claim dual Russian citizenship. If Galia was shy and soft-spoken, the friend who met them at the Lenin Library station more than made up for it. Alexander Andreevich Bandarenko, Sasha to his many friends, was large, loud, and dauntingly gregarious. Born and raised in Bratsk, north of Lake Baikal, he epitomized the expansive, wide-open character Siberians are justly famous for. Even before Galina could break from his embrace to make introductions, Sasha was holding out a hand to Knox, his face crinkling in a grin so wide it almost made his eyes disappear. Alexander Andreevich Bondarenko, he announced in a voice exuberant enough to draw stares from passers-by on the metro platform. Knox gave the beaming, sandy-haired stranger a dubious once-over. Young, perhaps only a year or so older than Knox, taller and thinner than your average Russian, with broad, peasant features redeemed from plainness by the lively intelligence shining out of his blue eyes and the way his mouth kept breaking out in a slightly gap-toothed grin. What the hell? Dismissing the stray, paranoid thought that this whole Metro episode was some elaborate KGB sting, Knox reached out and took the extended hand. Jonathan Knox, very pleased, Alexander Andreevich. Paranoia or not, it was best to keep the relationship at the arm's-length formality that went along with the first name plus patronymic form of address. But no, you must call me Sasha. The Russian offered the ultimate icebreaker, the diminutive version of his first name. John, Knox said, looking dubiously at his new, contraindicated friend. As it turned out, he needn't have worried. Sasha and Galina were neither dissidents nor informants. Like physics students the world over, they were almost wholly apolitical, and so caught up in their own complementary lines of research. Sasha, going for his doctorate in astrophysics at Moscow State, and Galina a teenage prodigy in magnetohydrodynamics at a small specialized institute across town, as to spare little interest for anything else. Knox had read enough pop science, layman's guide to relativity and such, to keep pace with his friend's enthusiasms. The late-night sessions in Knox's Moscow State dorm room sparkled and swirled with quasars and solar magnetospheres, neutron stars and black holes, the whole outre bestiary of fin de siècle astrophysics, 
as Sasha and Galena took turns grappling with the mysteries of the universe like cosmic tag-team wrestlers. And if conversation ever flagged on the cosmological front, the three could always fall back on that time-honored staple of Soviet discourse, the latest rumors. And what rumors? In the perfect informational vacuum engineered by the authorities, the merest scrap of hearsay would inflate and distort into breathless, Byzantine extravagance. Here's one you cannot have heard, John, Sasha would say, and then proceed to spin some improbable yarn about how the entire Soviet space program was being run on contraband microelectronics smuggled in from Silicon Valley. But even Sasha's best rumors paled by comparison with the one Knox himself had heard in a gypsy taxicab driving in from Sheremetyevo Airport the day of his arrival in August 1984. According to the cabbie, the official reports that Yuri Andropov had succumbed to kidney failure in February of that year were lies, plain and simple. In reality, the then General Secretary of the Communist Party and former KGB chairman had been assassinated in his sickbed, stabbed through the heart by an unidentified hospital worker who had thereupon promptly self-destructed. The only time Sasha ever topped that one, it wasn't with a rumor at all. It was with a mystery. The occasion was pineapples. Knox had gotten in the habit of making the trek up from the archives to the U.S. Embassy about once a week. If nothing else, you could chow down on a reasonable facsimile of a cheeseburger at the snack bar, and sometimes there were delicacies to be had at the small commissary down in the basement. That day... A bitingly cold, clear day in mid-February, he had struck edible gold, pineapples. A whole binful of the succulent tropical fruit had been delivered that morning, and there were still three left by noon. Knox bought two. The pineapples were a roaring success, with Sasha in particular. He got a faraway look in his eye, and reminisced how, as a child in Bratsk, he had once gotten close enough to a pineapple to actually smell it. And does the taste live up to what you remember of the smell? Knox wanted to know. Sasha's grin made his words all but superfluous. Live up to. It fulfills and overfulfills, my friend. Must have been hard, Knox mused, growing up with so few luxuries, so few necessities even. Vitamin C and all that, they're kind of essential. A hard life, yes, John, Galina said. She came from Tomsk, on the edge of the great central plateau. But also, Siberia can be a magical place for a child. Have you heard, for instance, of the whisper of stars? Knox shook his head, saying nothing that might interrupt her. He loved to listen to Galia speak. Russian was a beautiful language in any case, but in her warm, gentle contralto, it became a song. Far out on the taiga, in the dead of winter, it grows very, very cold. Cold enough that the breath quickly freezes in mid-air. So quickly, it makes a little tinkling sound. The whisper of stars, it is called. She sighed, remembering. It is enchanting. Also cold enough that you dare not drink a glass of tea coming straight in from outdoors, 
Sasha teased, or your teeth will crack. At a look from Galia, he relented. No, truly, our frontier is a land of marvels. Woolly mammoths perfectly preserved in the permafrost. Prehistoric fishes still alive in the depths of Baikal. Legends of giant subterranean rats and ghost wolves and thunder gods bringing down the wrath of heaven. And, of course, the greatest wonder of all. Galia wrinkled her nose. Please, no, Sasha. Not that old tale again. Galia grows tired of hearing me speak of this, he winked at Knox. And yet, it is the reason I study cosmology. How could the search for the secrets of the universe not be in my blood when I was born less than 500 kilometers from the epicenter of the mystery itself? And he told them then of Tunguska, of a meteor strike with no meteor, of a ring of fire-scorched blasted trees stretching for thousands of hectares in every direction, but no crater, of his meeting there with an ancient Ivanki shaman a shaman who claimed to have witnessed the thunder wings of the god Ogdi splitting open the sky and plummeting to earth, and who, on learning that his young visitor yearned to know the secrets of the stars, had opened his medicine pouch and from it brought forth a very special gift. Knox, you still with us here? The voice broke in on his reverie. He refocused his attention on an impatient-looking Aristos, hunched forward with his meaty forearms on the polyplast desktop. I don't see what good I could do you, Knox said at last. I haven't seen either Sasha or Galia in going on twenty years. I for sure never knew Sasha had gone on to scale the heights of Russia Incorporated. Not what I'd have expected from an astrophysicist. Sasha had always seemed well-connected, though and the brave new post-Soviet world had seen stranger success stories. You didn't try to keep in touch after you got back, Aristos asked. Sure, we sent letters back and forth for a while. The visits from your friends in the field agencies didn't help matters any. That's just standard exchange student follow-up. And it worked. When we scanned for someone who could get to Bondarenko, out pops your name. Anything else? Beyond the letters, I mean. Nothing, Knox said. Things were going to hell in a handbasket by then. Piristroika and Glasnost were triggering the whole revolution of rising expectations thing. I always thought we'd get back in contact after the dust settled. He shrugged. Never happened. Well, Knox, you're in luck. Rusalka docks in Baltimore this afternoon, with Bondarenko on board. Your reunion's all set for tonight. Grecian Enterprises is hosting a gala at the Kennedy Center, Mariana elaborated. A benefit for one of Grecian's pet causes, Mir Idrushba, his Peace and Friendship Foundation. Half the movers and shakers in Washington will be on hand for extra helpings of peace and friendship. You too, thanks to the email correspondence that put you back in touch with Sasha. Ignoring his glare, Mariana handed Knox an invitation featuring a hologram of the GEI Ouroboros and his own name in raised lettering. Appropriate attire has already been delivered care of your hotel room. Questions? You bet, said Knox. How about we start with, are you kidding?
been listening to Singularity by Bill DeSmet. <laughs> <laughs>